welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. And tonight we're welcoming someone back. I promised that she'd come back, and here she is. It's Allison Jornlin. Yay! She's gonna- Hi, everybody. It's Allison Jornlin. Yeah, she's going to talk with us more about some of the forgotten heroines of the paranormal in the past, some of our our foremothers. So who are you going to tell us about today? Today we're going to talk about Alexandra David Neal. She was, oh my gosh, so incredible. Uh, And she lived to 101. And I just found out that she actually died on September 8th, 1969. That was the day before I was born. So oh, wow. <laughs> <was> crazy. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, anyway, so we're going to talk about her today because she was just an incredible writer and explorer. Uh, one of those intrepid adventurers that you don't see many of. Uh, and also quite an intellectual. So, you know, she just wasn't writing Claptrap. I mean, she was really uh, studying her subject, and her favorite subject seems to have been Buddhism, something that uh, I've uh, studied um, in my younger years. Uh, And uh, I was really surprised in reading a couple of her books, uh, My Journey to Lhasa, about her interloping into the foreign city of Lhasa in Tibet uh, from 1927. And then I also read uh, a few times uh, my favorite book by her so far, Magic and Mystery in Tibet from 1929. Um, She actually has written about 35 books. uh, So there's a lot more to read. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them, I think, are still in French. And have, yes. haven't been translated into English, so that's we right. May not get to read all of them. She was she was French. Um, she was born in Paris, and then uh, re- her parents uh, relocated um, to Belgium for a while. Uh, so she was definitely a European, uh, but um, did a lot of research uh, so that she could actually first, you know, she learned to speak Sanskrit, and then she uh, endeavored to speak English uh, because she thought it would be more likely for people in Tibet, for example, which had uh, been um, part of the British Empire. Uh, So people in that region, because of the uh, British uh, in that area, uh, would probably speak English. So she learned English, and then the Dalai Lama... Uh, told her that she should learn Tibetan, and she did that too. So yeah, she's uh, we we're she's standing amazing. on the shoulder. Yeah, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. She anyway, also was she was yeah, an opera ahead. singer too, right? I know. Uh, yeah. So when she was younger, uh, well, actually, when she was two, when she was five, when she was a teenager, she kept like running away from home, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, covering vaster and vaster differences each time and uh and and actually you know she became an opera singer and she was uh for uh, a few seasons she actually sang in the opera in hanoi which is in um, modern day vietnam so uh she she used her career 
as an opera singer to help her travel and get to some of these locations in the East um, Mm -hmm. where uh, she wanted to be because she wanted to learn more about Buddhism. Now, uh, Barbara, um, how were you first introduced to Alexander David Neal? Or or we could just call her ADN. I first heard about her from John Keel. Big surprise, considering the name of the podcast. And I think that's the first time you heard about her too, Morgana, right? Yeah. Um, And to me, she's most famous. And I think most people would know her in the paranormal community as the person who brought the concept of a tulpa into Western thought or consciousness. That's right. And we're going to talk about that. But um, uh, when was she mentioned by John Keel? Um, in, in which books? In the Mothman prophecies is when I first remember hearing about this um, because he explains the concept of a tulpa and credits her with it that's right and and uh uh, for for you guys who may not have heard the the term tulpa yet although it is a controversial term for some uh in the the paranormal it's thought to be a thought form creature so thoughts are things um even more than you might have considered that that you can bring things to life through your thoughts which which really makes a lot of sense. Um, but they can also come about with some unintended consequences. Uh, so we can talk a little bit more about that. But Barbara, um, w- was that where you uh, discovered uh, Alexander David Neal through the Mothman prophecies? or That was, was there- the first place. Um, and when he talks about her, he talks... He, he says, you know, she traveled to Tibet. He does not mention that she was the first Western woman to infiltrate her way into the Br- British protectorate of Tibet at the time. And there was a, you know, it was not an easy thing to do. She disguised herself as a man. She disguised herself as a Tibetan man. She dyed her hair black. Um, and she, she, <laughs> she made hair extensions to make long braids uh, that were, you know, period and culturally appropriate for a Tibetan man or a Nepalese man uh, out of yak hair. So she had yak hair, hair extensions to make these braids. And she snuck in with uh, a young Buddhist monk who had been traveling with her. So they they snuck around and they were there for a good long while before they were discovered and asked to, you know, politely asked to leave because you know the british are polite when they kick you out of a country apparently. i'm just yeah. imagining bouncers in suits just peering <laughs> out of the mountains well, and being like pardon me you're not on the list you need to go i th- i think she got kicked out of tibet a couple of times oh yeah and and then um finally uh in 1924 she was able to entered Tibet and she wrote about it in her book called My Journey to Lhasa. So Lhasa was a forbidden city um, for Westerners and especially for Western women. Although, you know, on her meeting with the exiled Dalai Lama, he, he recommended that she go there. So it's not that she's just being an interloper. Uh, the, the Lama's 
uh, and the spiritual teachers that she met in the East encouraged her to go to Tibet. She also wanted to go there because <laughs> she wanted to be the first one. She wanted to be the first one to see certain like very uh, hard to reach mountain passes, for example. You know, when somebody would say, oh, I don't think any Westerner has been there. She's like, well, that's the way we're going. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's what, if you, you read my journey to Lhasa, that's what comes out. So, so um, the, Lhasa was a very important capital city in Tibet and also um, the spiritual center. And uh, so people could not, non-Tibetan people could not get in there. Um, and so I, I uh, so Barbara, she may have dressed up as a man on some occasion, but in the book, My Journey to Lhasa, um, she, she actually uh, goes with um, her adopted son, um, who she refers to as, as uh, Yangden. And um, so he was her companion for many years, even subsequently. 40-something yes. years, I think. Yes, yes. So um, they were very close, and um, she considered him a son. And so the two went together, and he was dressed as a lama, which he, he was, um, a Buddhist a holy man. And then she dressed as his mother and um she she did do all this all these different things like you had said barbara to um disguise herself as um a tibetan beggar so they were both they were both dressed as poor people because they thought well you know nobody's gonna give us a second glance if we go in right. as beggars but right. that made things very hard for them uh, because uh, they they had to like live on the edge, and uh, there's there's actually one part um, in their journey where they almost starve to death, and they make like a a shoe leather broth. I don't know how like how uh, nutritious that can really be, but not it, very. That just shows um, how desperate they were. Like, and her other travels, like she spent. Uh, 14 years um, tramping all over Asia um, and then she actually came back for like for uh, about a decade uh, later on in life um, but in this original trip that ended with um, her uh, about a two-month stay in uh, Lhasa in Tibet um, she uh, she dressed um, as a as his mother and um and was like right as you know as beggars they had to beg for everything so they were hardly eating anything and uh you know before that in her other travels and in subsequent travels you know she 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 had servants uh helping her with all this gear and you know she she was um she was welcomed to many like lamaseries uh, uh, by uh, the religious leaders, and she was received, you know, almost like, you know, royalty, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and she was treated very well, which is really awesome. Uh, but but then when she had to go to Lhasa, I mean, they were just eat, eating whatever, and yeah. uh, they would eat like rotten meat. Um, so I mean, 
kick ass. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> That's sorry. all right. You we said last time. Now, don't, don't swear. <laughs> but I'm just saying she was just amazing that that she would that she, she would was do a- that for months at a time, live in that way for, for like almost a she year. She was tough. Yeah. True and adventure uh, spirit. Right. Right. So um, she actually dressed, as I said, as as his mother and and uh, there's there's a lot of jokes. <laughs> well, what I thought are jokes in the book about um, old mother. Oh, old mother's sick. She can't eat any of that rotten meat. <laughs> <laughs> and then Youngden Youngden would say, "Why are you the one who's always sick? Now I have to eat it." <laughs> <laughs> so there's stuff like that. Uh, anyway, so that's a great book. Um, so she's known. For you know, bringing to light uh, the concept of the talpa, the thought form creature, and and this has been kind of contested in recent years uh, that maybe talpa is a mistranslation, or it's not really um, it's not really a Tibetan concept. Um, I don't know that that I b- believe in that, but um, so. Uh, maybe one of the most uh, famous appearances of this concept was on the X-Files. It actually appeared twice, uh, once in season six, and then much later on in the more recent um, episodes of the X-Files, and, and I believe that was season 10. So um, I can actually play a clip from um, the season six uh, and that uh, that episode was called Arcadia, and it gives. So it's just interesting. It's it's uh, it's something that that we can talk about that is a little less scholarly scholarly than some of the other things we'll talk about. But it's definitely um, a good landmark uh, or jumping off point for us. All right, so I'm going to play from Arcadia the original definition of tulpa that uh, Fox Mulder gives. A tulpa. It's a Tibetan thought form. It's a living, breathing creature willed into existence by someone who possesses that ability. An ability I think you picked up on your whirligate buying excursions to the Far East. Why'd you do it? I mean... Is it so damn important for everybody to have the same color mailbox? It's important that people fit in. You didn't know exactly what you were getting into, did you? I mean, you can summon its existence, but you can give it life, but you can't control it. The best you can hope for is to stay out of its way. Son, my lawyers are going to make you sound so stupid that not only will I never see the inside of a jail cell, but you'll be signing all your paychecks straight to me. So in this episode, um, a, a, game, a guy named uh, Gul, what's his name? Is Gulgak or something like that? Uh, <laughs> Mr. Gul, Gulgak, uh, who, who was the other person talking in the conversation, um, is part of this homeowners association for this gated community. And the original homeowners um, make this uh, pact that you know they're going to abide by all the uh, different rules uh, and. 
So if you don't abide by the rules, then this uh, big trash creature, because the um, housing development is actually built on an old landfill, um, will rise out of the ground and come and kill you. And uh, true to form, uh, with the modern interpretation of the Talpa, is at the end, it turns on its creator. So this idea of the Talpa very much comes from Alexandra David Neal and her book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet in 1929. Uh, and she talks about, this is really famous. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, psychic phenomena she talked about. So hopefully we can get into that. But um, so she talked about creating her own talpa and uh, she decided uh that she'd, she'd make it into kind of a Friar Tuck kind of character. And so she concentrates really hard and makes this um, thought form creature. And then she, as they're voyaging across Asia, you know, she'll see, um, she'll see uh, him like amongst the other writers. This is when, when she was tramping with, with servants and guides, uh, and Sherpas to carry her gear. Um, so she, she'd see him um, traveling with, with her caravan. And uh, then she thinks it's pretty fun um, until it get, it gets kind of a, a sly appearance. It looks a little bit more malicious than like happy yeah. and jolly. Uh, and then she also, she also uh, had a, a herdsman who was coming to her tent to uh, deliver deliver a gift of butter, and uh, he he saw it and thought it was another llama, and then told Alexander David Neal about it, and then she realized while well, other people are seeing it, uh, it might turn on me. So then she said she had to spend six months like killing it because. Um, she was preparing to, you know, at this time to go into Lhasa incognito and she didn't want any complications. Um, and Hopa kicking around. Yeah. Really big complication. <laughs> yeah. Causing hijinks. You know, uh, she was very worried, like when she was in uh, incognito of being discovered. So she didn't want anything holding her back and so she actually had to spend six months trying trying to dissolve it so that's really cool um now uh, she also talks about some other stories um which come uh from tibetan folklore now she tells one that i call the tibetan hat so there was a traveler and he was riding through the mountain, mountain passes and his hat blew off. And in, in Tibet, it was a custom to, to just leave it behind because it's bad luck to go run after it. And you also look like a dork. So, uh, <laughs> and you don't so want to look like a dork. Yeah. So he decided to just ride on and his, his hat is like caught in some bushes or whatever, blowing around. And then um, after a while, it gets pretty funky, you know, with all the weather. It gets wet and it looks kind of like matted fur, 
um, something like that. And, and it's in a bush. So so then the wind blows and then people, other travelers see it, you know, like, as if it's hiding in the bushes waiting to ambush them. <laughs> and they see this furry the thing. The hat is coming. <laughs> yes. Look out for the hat. <laughs> they see this furry thing, uh, you know, like lurking in the bushes. And then they start to talk about it. They go into town and they tell people there's this fierce creature at the edge of the woods. <laughs> and uh, watch out. Watch out for that thing. And uh, so it grows and grows in proportion in people's imagination. And then at one point, um, it actually does take flight and seems to run after some people. And so there's this whole idea that um, your thoughts can animate things. And even right. unintentionally, um, there's also this other story uh, that I'll call the dog's tooth, where um, this traveler, he's a trader, and he goes uh, to different parts of, of Asia, and his, his mother really wants... Uh, some kind of uh, relic of of a llama, something sacred that she can put in her shrine and worship every day. And uh, so he goes away. He comes back. He forgot his mom's request. Bad, bad son. And then again, he does it again. And then on the third time, he remembers, but he remembers too late. He's about to, he's about to, um, come up on his home and he's like, oh no, I forgot uh, to get her that relic and I can't do that again to her. So what does he see? He sees this jaw, this dog's jaw in the road and he, um, he plucks out a tooth and, you know, polishes it, cleans it off, put a, a wraps it in silk. And then he, when he sees her, he says, "Oh, I've got this, this um, tooth of this uh, of this great llama for your shrine." I'm and, feeling what's going to happen. Yes, and so she <laughs> puts it. She puts it in the shrine, and every day she like prays to it. But no, it doesn't start barking one night and like blows cover. Instead, <laughs> instead she sees like a faint glow coming off the tooth and so do other people. And so this is like a supposed, supposedly a Tibetan parable. Like even a, even a dog's tooth, even a dog's tooth will shine um, with the light of someone's devotion. So even though it wasn't yep. really a relic, she treated it like a relic. Right. And, and it started to behave like one. Now, um, this this idea of um, tulpas has become controversial uh, with people saying, no, you really meant tulku, um, which is another emanation of the Buddha. So these these uh, concepts are are pretty hard to wrap your mind around. Um, like I'm I still struggle with the idea of of rebirth rather than reincarnation. Like people say, oh, Buddhists, you know, believe in reincarnation. And that's not exactly right. They'll correct you and say, no, it's rebirth. 
so that, you know, your personality, your, your being is fully dissolved by death, but then you are born again. Um, so it's not, it's not exactly as a reincarnation, but I can't really even now describe the exact distinction. So, um, for Tolkus, that's, a that's a, someone who comes along after a great llama dies, someone else is born and, and, uh, the great llama is coming back into the world like a bodhisattva. So uh, right. a sacred being who comes back and could go on to nirvana and be free of the whole wheel of life, but instead comes back to do good in the world. And, and so this is a tulku. A tulku um, is the rebirth of one of these great llamas. So even though you're supposed to be dissolved by death, one of the ways they, they tell is they present uh, to the child some of the things that the old llama, uh, that the old llama owned. And that's one of the ways they, they recognize it. Yes, yeah. if they recognize it, that's one of the ways they tell that this is indeed a tolku. And and she actually, she actually knew a tolku in Sikkim, which is now part of India. Um, and uh, she hung out with that with that prince tolku. Uh, so I think she knew the difference. Oh, I'm uh, sure she did. Right, and she even talks about that in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, talking about. Um, that there's, it's hard to really distinguish sometimes, you know, there's no hard and fast law, a, a line between Talbot and Tolku. And one of the reasons that might be is because um, just like in the United States or any country, Tibetan isn't just, you know, everybody thinks the same thing. I mean, everybody's individuals and, and also the classes believe in different things. So um, the the lamas they're really at the top. They're the spiritual leaders. But then you have people that are householders, and those are the common people, and they don't believe exactly what the lamas believe. Like you know, the lamas believe like the rarefied version of Buddhism. But for the common people, the householders, it's often mixed with um, their beliefs are often mixed with shamanism. And mm-hmm. um, also sorcery. Yep. So maybe maybe the scholars are right talking about you know the the um, the details of the actual words um, and the word forms, um, but how these things are interpreted is more of a spectrum. So right. to me, like if somebody could say that you know. Uh, and prove that Alexander David Neal uh, made up these fables like about the Tibetan hat, um, then then maybe they would have an argument. But I, I read this article tracking the Tulpa, exploring the Tibetan origins of contemporary of a contemporary paranormal idea. And they um, this um, this was in 2015 um, in the journal Nova Religio, the Journal of Alternative and Emergent Religions. If you guys want to read it, just look it up on JSTOR. Anyway, so uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this article. It's very cool because it talks about John Keel, talks about Alexandra David Neal and a few other people and uh, says that, um, you know, 
there is a problem with the translation and that uh, Tulku, you know, is something that can only be produced by a Buddha. Um, so there's a lot of training involved. There's a lot of spiritual elevation involved for you to get to that level. So it, it isn't really, they argue that it isn't really something that can be created by the masses accidentally. And then uh, that, um, you know, this idea that it could be created accidentally and, uh, you know, become malicious and develop a life of its own or, or be created intentionally and then you lose control and then it becomes malicious. Um, those are, those are ideas that they say are invalid and, and, uh, were co like the, the, the idea of the Tulpa was co-opted by the paranormal, uh, because it was a convenient dodge, um, for, uh, people who believe in the paranormal to say, well, like slender man is is one that's what i was um, about to bring up actually yeah yeah go um, ahead i because it it it's also kind of a parable of the dog's tooth um it is yep. a phenomena that is specifically false like slender man is is not a real paranormal entity it was created on a message board for fun and to make an interactive group horror story so there's you know all it was kind of these... like role and yeah and, uh, and yeah collective storytelling it, exactly it's collective storytelling with everybody has their own take and then a big twist happened where the concept of tulpas was introduced to the mythos of slender man and so now there's this big idea that maybe we're making slender man real and so even though people people are saying that but not really believing it but also kind of playing with this concept that because it's become so popular, could they be making a tulpa? And I feel like that really caught that community on fire and that helped spread the Slenderman mythos even further. Um, yeah. And and what's interesting too is is what's what's not um usually known, and, and this is something that I told Nick Redfern and he wrote a book about the Slenderman and and so it ended up in there. Um okay, so um, the, the night, uh, before, um, the terrible events in, uh, Waukesha where, mm -hmm. um, two girls tried to, uh, kill one of their friends, uh, for Slenderman, um, the night before that happened, uh, on coast to coast AM, um, there were, uh, Dave Schrader had, uh, a guest, Bill Murphy, and they were talking about this very thing about how Slenderman may be, be may be becoming real. And then I I was shocked because I wasn't listening to it that night. I was listening to it the following day on Sunday. I was cleaning the kitchen or whatever, and then you know I hadn't been listening to that. And then I turned on the news and I saw. I saw the girls. news about the Slenderman stabbing. So that really freaked me out that, um, and, and Hey, maybe the girls, you know, they were sleeping over. Maybe they were listening to coast to coast that night. I mean, that's not, that was never brought out in the trial, but, but anyway, it's just a, maybe it's an interesting coincidence. It is um, a really weird and interesting coincidence. Yeah. And creepy. Yeah. And, and I, 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 creepy. I, I live in, uh, 
Milwaukee, so I'm not far yeah. from Waukesha. I grew up near Waukesha. So um, it was extra creepy because it's um, not very far away. My parents still live out there. Uh, anyway, so the, this idea of, you know, the, the, the that you can make something real um, was really taken up by the paranormal community. But um, it's a it's an attractive concept. And I don't think it's just attractive to Westerners. And again, you have to consider um, that not everybody in Tibet is at the level of, of, of scholar so that they would argue with you that um, a talku and a talpa, you know, that you can only create a thought form if you are at that certain level and you couldn't do it accidentally, you know, I think, you know, there's some room for disagreement there. Um, I mean, even among people of the culture. Now, um, I, uh, I'm going to play another clip from the X-Files in just a second, but um, I, I just want to re relate a couple more stories from magic and mystery in Tibet, because again, people only know the Friar Tuck one and there's so much, so many other good stories in there. So, um, so she talks, uh, Alexander David Neal talks about um, some experiences that, that she had. Um, one of them, um, one of them was related to something called a, a Yidam, and that's a, a meditation deity. So uh, meditators uh, in Buddhist meditators will often focus on uh, the image of a spiritual deity, and she talked about how these uh, how these uh, lamas in training they're developing this skill, and how they would how they would often um, go into a hermitage and not see anyone for months, years, and work on this skill, and how sometimes the the yidam would walk out of the hermitage and be visible to other people. And then you know you've made it. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> you know what's uh, really interesting is yeah. the room I'm sitting in, I can't show you, um, but we have one of those images hanging on the wall. Oh, nice! Of one of the deities that you meditate upon and then visualize it into being. Is it like a scary one, like Vajrayapani? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's that's my favorite one. The eyes. Okay. Yeah, it might be him. So, uh, <laughs> so she had a, a, she knew an artist there in, um, in, I don't know if she was in Tibet or, um, she was probably in Tibet if it's in Magic and Mystery in Tibet. So, um, this isn't probably from Lhasa, but another, um, less, um, less controversial city for her to be in. So anyway, she's, um, she's meeting an artist. And as she crosses in to the place where he's staying, she sees he's one of these fierce yidams. Um, and she's like, Whoa. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I've, I've been working on this portrait all day. And that, that's all I've had in my head. And you saw it too, so I thought that was really cool. Um, then that's the, a good one. Yeah. Then at the end of the book, there's um, talk about how you can also use a tulpa as an emanation of yourself before you're even dead. 
or maybe right after you're dead. Um, so there's uh, there's a, a Tashi Lama who who wants to get his new temple um, to the Buddha Maitreya consecrated, and so uh, he calls on this this hermit that has been his really ancient guy. He's been um, his advisor all the Tashi Lama's life. And he's like, you got to be there. You got to do, you got to uh, consecrate the temple. And <laughs> then the, his, his friend, the hermit is like, I'm going to be dead by then. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, you just hold on until you consecrate the temple. And he's like, okay, all right. I won't die until after I consecrate the temple. So the day of the consecration happens and the Tashi Lama sends a bunch of people with this sedan chair um, to carry this hermit to the city. Uh, and so it's like an enclosed, um, it's like a stagecoach kind of thing, except people yeah. are carrying it. I, that's what I visualize it as anyway. It could be totally wrong. But anyway, they, they put him in there in the sedan chair and then they close it up. And uh, so thousands of people are gathering at this temple. And all of a sudden, they see this hermit walking down the road alone. The hermit that is supposed to do the consecration. And, you know, he comes um, and, you know, consecrates the temple and then disappears. And then the people um, uh, with the sedan chair arrive a little while later and uh, they open up the door. And nobody's in there. And then they never see the hermit again. So was yep. was he still alive, but not really feeling, um, you know, ready for uh, the public <laughs> and wanted to send out a, 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 you know, more polished emanation of himself? Or was he already dead? And uh, there's, there's this idea that he, he died, but he set this, this tulpa, I guess, as we'll call it, into motion, at, you know, right before he before he died, and then on the the on the agreed upon date, uh, this this thing came into being and did what it was supposed to do. It's like like if you would have said to me, you know, be on the podcast, and I'd be like, I'm gonna be dead then, <laughs> <laughs> and then here I am doing the podcast, and I'm really dead, and I just I just had to, I just had to you know meet that appointment. I couldn't let it go. Even though it was yeah, dangerous. so yeah. um, that's that's a, another idea. But I like then, that story. Yeah. Um, it's like I'm a crisis apparition. I was expecting him to be dead in the sedan chair at the end yeah, of that story, I was and like they opened too. it and there's his body, and they're like, "But who was consecrating?" And I, I'm really happy it wasn't that gruesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he might have been dead because some llamas are thought to uh, get smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> until, until they, they disappear. disappear. They're like Yoda that way. They just so, yeah. So maybe he was really in there, and he just you know nobody saw him shrink and then disappear. That could be too. We don't know because nobody nobody was able ever to see him again. Um, and Alexander David Neal really wanted to follow up on that story, but uh, couldn't because of you know the restrictions to her travel. Um, but she she did talk to um, you know people that she believed. Uh, credible people uh, who did see this happen. So um, now, so that would be, I guess that would be 
on the side of more of a, a tulku kind of situation, but it was just, you know, temporary tulku, I guess. So anyway, let's listen to, uh, let's listen to episode, um, I don't know the episode, the episode is called Home Again, um, and uh, it's in season 10, and let's see what Mulder says now about the tulpa. Translation of the Tibetan word tulku, meaning a manifestation body. There is no idea in Tibetan Buddhism of a thought form or thought as form, and a, and a realized tulku would never harm anyone, let alone kill. Okay, but I'm telling you, I spend a lot of energy in my heart. So it seems like it's totally corrected now that that Mulder doesn't believe what he said in season six anymore. He's grown to believe that it's a, a mistranslation, but you'll know you'll notice that he said, "What did he say? What kind of mistranslation was it? It was 1929." Mm -hmm. Yes, so Magic and Mystery in Tibet uh, came out in 1929. So I think he's referring to that, and he's referring to Alexandra David Neal is yep. a th theosophist. Is that right that time? <laughs> Yeah, you got it. You got I really it that have, time. I really have. Uh, it's not an easy word with, with that word. Yes. So this is something I'm really glad that somebody on the writing team seems to read, seems to have read this article tracking the tulpa. I mean, that's really awesome. Um, and they know that it's it's being discussed as a possibility that tulpa was a mistranslation. But uh, I hate the fact that they call her a. What's that word again? Theosophist. <laughs> Theosophist. Thank you. So theosophy. Um, it is not Buddhism. Um, do you guys know what theosophy is? Theosophy was a syncretic East-West religion created by Madame Blavatsky. Um, and it, it arose in America. And then As so went, many things did. So many things. And then went into Europe and, and it was, it was, it's not as old as spiritualism, but there's spiritualism in its roots. There's a little bit of that. And it's basically, it is at the base, I would say, of the entire new age movement and is at the basis of a lot of our paranormalist thoughts in yes. the West. I would agree uh, with that. Helena Blavatsky, the founder, uh, she was possibly the most influential occultist. Uh, you know, she even uh, influenced Aleister Crowley. Yeah. So, you know, people yeah. hear that name, Aleister Crowley, all the time, but uh, they don't often hear uh, Helena Blavatsky. So was Alexander David Neal a theosophist? Uh, the <laughs> I can't do it now. I, I think she wasn't a theosophist. I think she was theosophist adjacent. Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, because although um, she hung out with the theosophists, so it's Theo God, Sophia, uh, wisdom. wisdom. So it's like godly wisdom. So, so theosophy um, is an Eastern influenced religion but it's it's mostly indian influenced not mm -hmm. really buddhist influenced and um the, the idea is that there's these, these ascended 
masters of ancient wisdom and that uh, they came to Blavatsky and they they helped her develop uh, theosophy, which is supposed to be not really a religion, but a proto-religion that they're looking for um, the underpinnings of all world religions and saying, right. well, let's take all that good stuff and just follow that. Um, so, but Blavatsky, she has a lot of controversy um, that mm. follows her around. Um, now, uh, Alexandra David Neal did meet Blavatsky in her early 20s, and she also did uh, stay with theosophists and study at their libraries. But who doesn't like studying at their libraries? They have libraries all over the world, and um, it's just a cool place where you can go and, and you know find all these great texts. And so oh, she yeah. wanted, she wanted to they, learn. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Don't they? Didn't they stockpile as many like comparative religious texts as they could find and get as many different religious texts as possible? So yeah. that the Theosophists could continue to refine their knowledge. Yes, that's right. Because they were looking but, for the underpinnings of all religions. So when Alexander David Neal wants to learn more about Buddhism, and where does she go? And when she wants to learn Sanskrit, where is she going to go? She's going to go to the Theosophists. Theophysist, uh library. I think I said it wrong again, but anyway, you get me. Um, and that's where she learns Sanskrit. And then later on, she does she does stay with them. Uh, they have um, in India, they have um, some different headquarters. Like one is Adyar, and the other one I think is in India is called Benares. So, um, you know, she did stay with them, and she did learn from their libraries. Uh, but I don't think you can say that she's a, a theosophist. The, she, she isn't a theosophist. <laughs> that I, is, I, I don't think you can say that. I think that is an inaccuracy um, because of, of some some things that she actually said in her writing and, you know, how she talks about um, the the other members of the uh, the Theosophical Society, um, as kind of separate from her. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, she does mention, you know, staying with them in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, uh, during the Second World War, she actually, uh, writes, um, writes, uh, you know, one of the heads of, of, um, of the organization, a letter and, you know, thanks, Thanks everyone, you know, for all their help and hospitality and also is reaching out and saying, you know, I'm really sorry about the war and that, um, I think she was maybe back in Tibet at this time. And, um, she, she seemed to be in Tibet when world wars were happening, <laughs> um, which but, is not a terrible place to be. At that that's time. right. And so she was writing to check in on them and say, you know, that she was she was sorry about the hardships brought by the war and that she's conveying her good thoughts to all members of of the Theosophical Society. See, I can say Theosophical pretty well. Um, and it seems like she is separate. Now, also, we're, we're getting a little bit more uh, controversial with certain quotes uh, that come from uh, Madame Blavatsky. Now she says, uh, I mean, they come from uh, Alexander David Neal and seem to be referencing things that Blavatsky 
was involved in. Um, she was involved in spiritualist seances, for, for example. And um, she says in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, phantoms, as Tibetans describe them, and those that I have myself seen do not resemble the apparitions which are said to occur during spiritualist seances. Yep. In Tibet, the witnesses of these phenomena have not been especially invited to endeavor to produce them or to meet a medium known for producing them. Consequently, their minds are not prepared and intent on seeing apparitions. There, um, there's no table upon which the company lay their hands, nor any medium in a trance, nor a dark closet in which the latter is shut up. Darkness is not required. Sun and open air do not keep away the phantoms. So it's interesting to me that she would write a book and, you know, if she wanted to preserve all things theosophical, she's not doing it here. She's talking no. about what the Buddhists believe. Yeah. And most tellingly in the chapter um, called uh, On the Wind or Messages Sent on the Wind, uh, in which she talks about telepathy. So uh, she, she says um, that these are psychic and mystic experiences which words cannot describe. Whatever may be the share of truth or fancy in such theories, I prefer to avoid discussing them. But she does say this. One thing I may say, however, is that communications from mystic masters, hmm, what does that sound like? Ascended <laughs> yeah. masters, masters of yeah. ancient wisdom, like they're talking about in the Theosophical Society, which is like a major important part. She says, one thing I may say, however, is that communications from mystic masters to their disciples through gross material means, such as letters, ding, ding, ding. We'll talk about that in a minute. Such as letters falling from the ceiling or epistles one finds under one's pillow are known in Lamas, are, are unknown in Lamas mystic circles. When questions regarding such facts are put to contemplative hermits, erudite lamas, or high lamas dignitaries, they can hardly believe that the inquirer is in earnest and not an irreverent joker. <laughs> I remember the amusing reflection of a llama uh, when I told him that some uh, some fillings, or I think it's pillings, uh, that, that's what they call foreigners, believed in such ways of communi communicating with departed ones or even with Tibetan mystic teachers. He said, and these are the men who have conquered India? He exclaimed, <laughs> utterly amazed at such simplicity in these otherwise redoubtable <laughs> Englishmen. Okay. So, so my point is you got to read closely. This sounds very much as, as a reflection and a recollection of the Mahatma letters, which mm -hmm. is a controversy that Madame Blavatsky probably would have liked to avoid. The idea is that these ascended masters not only may come to you and, you know, talk to you, um, like it won't be unusual for a Lamas to do, for example. You know, they may come to you in spirit form, say stuff to you, and then uh, go away. Um, but she actually said that they were precipitating letters so precipitation is like this now. A, a, yep. Yep. is like a painting or you know a writing by the spirit. So uh, in 
it's something that's believed in spiritualist circles. So um, at uh, the headquarters in India at Adyar, um, in Madame Blavatsky's writing room, she had something called the shrine, which was this uh, this wooden cabinet with all these little drawers. And then um, Richard Hodgson from the uh, SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, came because she was claiming that there were letters that would just appear in this cabinet and that um, it was sometimes demonstrated for for people that would come and visit the, the headquarters that, um, oh, you know, you want a letter from one of the ascended masters um, and then they'd open the door in the cabinet. Oh, here it is. And uh, it became a big thing. Uh, there were allegations of fraud from actually inside of the organization. Um, someone who was uh, put in charge uh, of, of the Ad Adyar um, headquarters uh, said that uh, Blavatsky had enlisted them to uh, perpetrate a hoax and um, use magicians' tricks to make these letters mm -hmm. appear. I'm and, sitting here going, I know how they did that. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> yeah, that's what put a hole in the back of the cabinet, and you had a, a a person with a writing desk in the next room scribbling the hell out of the way. You know, whatever right. gobbledygook that sounded. You know, holy. Yes. Well, and these that or you just have a drawer with a thin piece of wood at the top and you have just, the thing prepared already and, and when it you drops shove down. it in yeah. a certain way, you just hit a button on the knob as you push it in. Yeah. And it drops in and then you can pull it out. There's yep. still there all this controversy about it. There's people that are like are like uh somebody wrote a book and uh he was a theosophist um, in 1986 saying, oh, you know, Richard Hodgson was wrong. And, uh, mm. you know, I I mean, today we kind of recognize that as it seems like a, if it seems like a magician trick, it probably is. So um, I think this is what Alexander David Neal is referring to. I think you're right. And no, you know, like people just. They're just like, they look at, you know, some other, uh, you know, the fact that she um, she was friends with people in the Theosophical Society as this is what she believed. And to me, all her writings on Buddhism really match up with um, the, the reading on Buddhism I have done you know, for years and had no idea about Alexander David Neal. So I'm coming into this with already a little bit of, of knowledge about Buddhist teachings. And mm -hmm. to me, there's nothing that she says that really surprises me. Right. Um, it, it all seems to align. So, you know, if she was talking about uh, the ascended masters, you know, then, I, then I could, I could see, but, you know, I did a little bit of reading about uh, theosophy and read, uh, Annie Besant's book, um, Thought Forms. Which is also where I think a lot of people go, oh, right. well, that's what she meant by a tulpa. It's the same right. thing as Annie Besant. And it's like, I, no. no, I don't think it is. Because if you read that book, that book is all about colors and shapes that just come off of mm -hmm. people um, yeah. when they're experiencing emotion. And that yeah. there's particular colors and shapes associated with all kinds yep. of emotions. Yeah, and that's and, more aura. Right. It's like aura. Fun. It's like it seemed like, um, yeah, it's like pe 
people were watching other people's auras and this is what they were seeing. Um, so, so to me, the only similarity in there that I could find is that uh, she said that, you know, sometimes artist creations will um, start to develop, you know, some autonomy. So she did, that is very similar to what um, Alexander David Neal was saying about the Yidam. But um, I, yeah, I just, uh, that book is very much not about the thought forms in the way that we think of them. Um, yeah. It's just saying that thoughts are things and that they emanate into your aura and they can be seen by others so they can know what you're feeling and thinking. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, the, so more than the tulpa, there's, there's other things uh, like telepathy that um, Alexander David Neal uh, came across. Uh, for example, um, in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, uh, she talks about um, oh, a lot of different instances of uh, telepathy um, that, you know, people knew when they were coming. When mm -hmm. That happens uh, in Jadu, too. Yes, it does. Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, so so one of those instances uh, was she meets, she, she and um, Yangden meet... Um, a, a llama on the road and so they they don't say anything but alexander david neal is like i really want some curd i've been just drinking buttered tea with um some sampa which is roasted barley flour and that's all i've had could i just get some curd and i'd like and and she was like yeah then after after we talked to these llamas let's go and get some curd from the farmer over there and uh so she doesn't say this to the llama, but the llama who is, you know, coming from yards away, um, all of a sudden sends, um, uh, you know, one of his, uh, companions away to the farmer. And then, um, the, the companion comes back and presents this crack full of curd to Alexander David Neal. And, you know, this is completely wordless also between the llama and the companion. Um, they, they look at each other, but that's all they do. They don't talk. They don't seem mm -hmm. to hear what was said between Youngden and uh, Alexander David Neal. And they just get the curd for them as a courtesy. And uh, there's an, actually another story. Uh, I don't know if this is telepathy or if this is... Uh, something else or telling the future but in my journey to Lhasa which is pretty much straightforward an adventure story uh, so she and, and Youngden are pretending to be beggars and they they're just tramping through you know vast that vast uh, distances and they stop at this riverbank and nobody knows them because that's the idea they're in in disguise uh and so then this guy at the river comes up to yangden he is dressed as a llama so he said oh i've been waiting for you and he's like whoa you know I, i'm just passing through i think you are looking for someone else and he said no i'm looking for the llama at the river who is making tea and then he explains that he has a dying relative at home that told him that there would be a llama at the river making tea and he should bring him back. 
And uh, and the reason that the dying man wanted him is there's certain Tibetan death rites that he wanted bestowed on him before he passed over so that he could be secure in uh, having a, a, a good rebirth. And so they fight about it a little bit. He's like, no, no, you mean somebody else. And then finally he goes and and he sees the dying man and he's like, I, I'm sorry I came because uh, your relatives were so insistent, but I, I think you maybe were waiting for someone else. And he's like, no, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he uh, does the death rites and the guy passes on happy. Um, but... Uh, it was just, and, and Alexander David Neal and stuff like that happens. She just said, well, she just says, well, this might be in interesting to psychical researchers to look into further. This is what happened. We don't have an explanation. Uh, you know, we're not going to even venture, you know, she didn't even venture to guess as to what exactly was behind it in uh, my journey to Lhasa. Uh, but I just thought that was a, a great story. That is a good one. And I kind of like that she doesn't try and explain. She's just <laughs> like straight reporting. Like, this is just what happened to me. Right. Yeah. Which I think lends a lot of credence because, yeah. like, if she was a theosophist, she would be like all up in there being like, I'm going to explain a bunch of this stuff and fit right. it into my worldview. Right. And this is because like, of Ascended yeah. Master so and so. Exactly. And so yes. she's like, this happened. I don't know why. Somebody who researches this should really check it out. Because right. it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so she, she does that a lot. And Magic and Mystery in Tibet, she explains more because she says when she wrote her 1927 book, My Journey to Lhasa, people were like, whoa, we want to hear more about that spooky stuff. And then so she writes a whole book about it. Um, and so we talked about talpas. We talked about telepathy. Also, there's Tumo. Do you guys know what that is? I do not. No. Okay, so Tumo is um, the practice of using your breath to warm you up. And she oh, talks about I yes, that. that. I just didn't know what it was called. Yeah, so it's <laughs> called Tumo. And um, these Buddhist practitioners uh, will sit out, like, practically naked uh, in you know, incredibly cold weather because they're up in the mountains usually. <laughs> so, and uh, during winter in Tibet, it's not like sunny San Diego or anything like that. Um, and they will sit there and, uh, oh man, in, in her description, there's really a lot of detail. There's, there's sacred syllables that you're supposed to, that you're supposed to intone in certain ways. There's certain visual, visual, visualizations of fire and just all these different things that you have to do but um basically uh there's certain breathing techniques and visualizations and things that you say and uh then you can melt the snow around you and um you'll be out there for hours and hours and then you will take um, these sheets and put them in freezing water and then lay them over you and then you have to dry the sheet and it's kind of a competition sometimes to see how many sheets you can dry <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that if you're the one who gets the most sheets then you're the winner of that round you get an extra dumpling at dinner. That's, that's what <laughs> yeah. you get. So she had she had her own experiences with that. Um, one with a teacher, 
And another one when she accidentally fell into the river. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, on one of her travels and was freezing <clears throat> to death uh, in the, the soaking wet clothes and had to dry them. And so she used Tumo to do that. And I think it's interesting. Um, you know, now we have, um, I'm going to say this name wrong too, Wim Hof. And uh, he has seemed to, you know, make this practice like more available um, to people mm-hmm. and he secularized it. Uh, but apparently you can uh, control your body heat and make yourself warmer. I mean, that's just, it's astounding. But that might not be a psychic uh, feat, but it's bloody cool anyway. Um, but if you look at it, yeah. and if you look at the similarities, if you look at how the creation of a tulpa works, according to Alexander David Neal, and then later reported by John Keel in his books, it is intense visualization. It is also intense um, repeated visualization. And it is also belief and intense concentration of belief in an image or something. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at Tumo, it is a combination of visualization of flame or fire and breath work, which, you know, if you've studied yoga or um, even Zen Buddhist meditation, concentration of the breath, bringing it in, bringing it out, bringing it in, bringing it out, yeah. changes your body it changes your heart rate it changes your oxygenation rate and, and um, it changes also, your brain waves like working with the the belly which is the, thought to be mm-hmm. the seat of fire in the body yep so um so there's a lot there's a lot so to there that. there's to me the 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 fact that she that she accurately describes tumo and then also is talking about this tulpa building business and they're similar tells me that she probably didn't mistranslate something. Oh yeah. I mean, she may the- have misunderstood something and adapted it to her own thoughts, but I don't think she just miss, you know, mistranslated something or it didn't exist. Right. It is, you know, there's this, something at is. the back of this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think it's, the idea of the power of the mind and and Buddhist teachings definitely teach you that the powers of mind make this whole world. And at the yes. highest levels, everything is an illusion. And yep. you and me, <laughs> you know, Morgana, Barbara, Allison, we're all really one being. Yeah. Yes. Everyone. Everyone is one being. Even Donald Trump is part of us. I knew you oh. were going to say that. <laughs> you had to bring that I'm one sorry, up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, that gives you an idea of the struggle of, of being able to realize that we're all one being. Um, yeah, it is hard. Yeah. You can't say we're all one being except that one over there with all the right. orange skin and the weird hair. Looking, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I like how you're thinking about that perhaps Tumo, because of that visualization in it, it has, um, you know, similar, similar uh, things are done in the mind uh, that make that fire real. Um, 
But I wonder what Vim Hof would say about that. Because, you know, he's somebody who's who's uh who's tramped mountains, you know, in like no shirt or like a t shirt and like shorts. He wears hiking boots, but that's it. Like, you know, going up to Mount Kilimanjaro and I think they might have even done Avarice, I'm not sure. Um, but they've they've done things that that normal mountaineers said you guys are going to die. <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and as far as I know, uh, Wim Hof and, you know, listeners could correct me if I'm wrong, but um, what I've seen so far is, is he, he doesn't have any visualizations associated with it, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, I've only done some of the breath work and my brother actually subscribed. So I should have asked him, okay, what is their visualization? I could have done that during Thanksgiving. Didn't do it. Sorry, guys. That would be a great <laughs> Thanksgiving conversation. Yes. Oh, yeah. What's their visualization? Because I want to know how close it is to Tumul, because it seems to work in the same way. So uh, we, we, can't, we can't forget also um, other uh, phenomena that you witnessed, like the Lungumpa runners. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. So she... on. On uh, at least three different occasions um, in Magic and Mystery in Tibet, describes that she sees um, she sees this little dot. It's like far away, and she's like, "What is that thing? It seems to be traveling at this extraordinary speed." And then she watches, and then sees eventually that it's a man, and he's running near them, um, but he seems to be like almost not in contact with the ground like maybe floating above the ground a little bit and moving at extraordinary speed and not being held up by any of you know the rocks um he's not a big old klutz like i am so he's just like (laughs) he's just like cruising along and and she's like oh my god i've got to stop this guy and one of the people that's with her is like nope, nope. You cannot stop him because he's look at him. He's in a trance, and uh, if you stop him, he may die. So she's like, all right. Um, <laughs> but they did follow him for a while. Uh, but you know, she saw um, these runners on three different occasions, and uh, one of them that they saw was not running. He was actually chained to a rock, and the reason for that. Is because the Lungampa uh, practitioners, um, they get so light, they might fly off in their meditation. <laughs> so, so they chain themselves to rocks. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. And of course, it has to do with levitation. And uh, what's interesting is she seemed to talk about um, yogic flying, which has uh, come to um, modern attention. Um, you know, in the past few decades, um, because some gurus from India use that with their followers, and it's basically you're just hopping on your legs, <laughs> so you're right. you're sitting in the lowest position and hopping along. But she says, you know, that's only the first part, which I thought was really interesting. Um, she said, you know, advanced practitioners will have this pit dunk, dug for them, and then they'll again they're alone in this pit. Until they can, there's actually this, uh, the platform that's put, put on top with this hole in the middle. And, um, 
so they're in this deep pit, and then when they can raise um, sufficiently so they can peek out the top, then then they know they've got it. So um, it was really interesting that this idea that that you know nobody's like flying around um, like you see in the Marvel movies, uh, but the idea that you could even levitate a few feet that seems extraordinary and you know these runners uh you know they're not flying but you know what they were able to do seems extraordinary as well um and she also talks about uh, about uh practices to assassinate people um with maybe telekinesis she she talks about uh that uh, if you wanted to kill somebody um, and he had a, a knife, like, in his study. You could concentrate on that knife. And that eventually, um, if you are able to concentrate enough, either the knife will just jump up and kill him. That was one of the ideas. Or the guy will be impressed um, somehow by your psychic work and grab the knife and stab himself. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then she also does talk a lot about the afterlife and different death rites. And this got me thinking that, wow, you know, what happens in the West when we don't do these things? And it's the idea <laughs> yes, the idea is really terrifying because um, they have these elaborate rituals and um, the llamas will actually um, release, uh, release the spirit from the body. Um, by saying eek. <laughs> oh, actually, that's right. Actually, too, eek pay, eek pay. But you have to, like, say it in exactly the right way. But you got to be really careful practicing it because it's also used by monks um, as a form of suicide. You can do it to yourself. Um, now, when you're working with um, somebody who is, is has just died, then um, there's no danger because you're your focus is on this person. And so any um, syllables that you're pronouncing go to that person. Um, but it was really interesting that these people have to practice it, but don't practice it too well or you could die. Um, and I thought it was extraordinary too. Like eek, actually, they said, if you intone eek in a certain way, um, it will open uh, part of your skull. And so what they would actually do is insert a reed in there. And then as they're practicing, they know that they're doing it right if they can make the reed stand up straight. So I thought, wow, that would be something that would be interesting to study because, okay, you don't have to do all of it, just the eek part. And, you know, is anybody still practicing that you know, you should be able to tell if a hole is opening in someone's skull. In somebody's head. Right. Yeah. That should be uh, empirically provable or disprovable. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know why any, nobody's studying that. But, again, people only seem to talk about the the story of Friar Tuck um, and, and her tulpa. Um, and they don't tell anything else about Alexander David Neal. And they don't read these things closely. And there's many more stories. It just really, this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I wanted to give a little bit of a, a buffet 
of the paranormal things that she talked about because uh, there's so much in there and there's so many great stories. And I, I wish I wish people would read it closely and uh, do it justice. So did she ever me. see any exorcisms? Okay, so she did. She did. I, ju I just learned about the the stone breaking exorcism. Oh, that they practice in that. Lhasa. Yeah. Um, so basically, there are troops of actors who are magic and and sacred who will perform this ceremony that a great lama invented, like in 1300 something um, and they'll recreate it and what they do is they have a whole ceremony that's also a play where they you know do they they lean their bodies on swords and pierce their shoulders with pins and one cheek with a pin and they perform the play and then the climax of it is they prepare the man who's going to have the stone broken on him by having him recite, you know, the right syllables. And he lays with incense with his head at the altar of, with an image of the original Lama who saw, who did this exorcism to solve an epidemic. Um, and they select a huge stone in the village. That's usually, that's almost too big to pick up. And then they lay it on his chest and then they strike it until it shatters and if it doesn't break after 13 strikes it's bad luck and they have to stop but they usually break it on strike two wow and that they the they trap the evil spirits in the stone throughout the ceremony and then they crack the stone and it gets rid of the evil spirit that's very cool and that's in tibet yeah, that was that was seen in Lhasa by a sociologist as late as 2012. It was oh, still wow. going on. That's yeah. why the world didn't end <laughs> in 2012. That's why they they averted crisis. Yes. Now they need to get on that for the the 2020 2021 thing. Absolutely, break some more stones, people. Right? Um, yeah, we're doing exorcisms this week in a cult class. So oh. I just I just learned about this today. So you have that's cool. We need to hear more about a cult class. But uh, yeah, she she doesn't talk about the stone breaking. She talks about some other uh, practices with exorcism. Um, so. You know, this idea that spirits could take over your body, um, that that is mentioned, and a lot of other death rites are mentioned. I don't have a lot of detail. Um, and uh, she does she does relate uh, that when she's talking to one llama, she wants to talk to his superior at some point and ask him a question. So, um, you know, all of a sudden, this this llama that they're with, you know, cause she's like, ah, oh, darn, I wish so-and-so was here. Cause I want to ask him such and such question. And all of a sudden the llama that they're with, like goes in this trance. And then the other llama that she wanted to talk to comes through and answers the question. And then, and then, uh, the guy recovers slowly and just, he's like out of it. So he just like goes back to his room and there's no explanation. He doesn't give any explanation um, himself. Um, although it was obvious to them what was happening. Uh, so the the idea that you could possess different bodies 
um, it is something that she discussed. She she also <laughs> talks about um, this llama who who wanted there to be uh, at some point in history um, wanted um, a return to celibacy. So um, he he has a the this uh, detractor who is challenging him. Uh, challenging him on it he's another religious leader that is married doesn't want to give up his wife so um they the the wife also says well you know i'm married to him so i'm half of him so you gotta beat me too and uh so they say well you don't have any experience of you know being with a female or know what it's like to be married. So that actually uh, puts you at a disadvantage. You don't know everything that um, a married uh, person or a married couple would know. So um, he's like, okay, uh, well, um, if I can, if I can uh, have like, you know, six weeks to learn this, um, you know, would you, would you reconsider giving me that recess and then we'll come back and um, I'll see if I can beat you. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Cause they don't think he can really do that. So um, luckily this, um, this nearby prince, this elderly prince has just died and they're putting him on the funeral pyre and everything. And then the llama like takes over his body. <laughs> and uh, so this prince, you know, has wives and concubines and everything like that. And, they're like all wailing and everything because the guy's dead. Um, uh, and he's like this old dude who, who wasn't much fun, apparently. And then the llama comes in. And uh, and so he he is, is uh, much more interested, shall we say. And they're really surprised <laughs> at the change so in get, the prince. So he gets off the pyre is what you're saying. Yes. And, yes. And he gets off the pyre. That's for there's sure. lots of. Okay. And lots uh, of getting off. Of that's right. And um, also the, the advisors of the prince are like, what happened to this dude? He seems to have gained some great intelligence. He's a lot smarter <laughs> than he used to be. And, uh, and then, so, so the, the, the uh, companions of the llama, he was like, okay, I'm going to leave my body. You got to guard the body. And yeah. then, so, so the, um, the companions of the prince, they're like, okay, we like this dude a lot better. So, um, we're going to send soldiers out to find this body. It must be a llama in this, in the prince. So we're going to send soldiers out to find the, to find this unattended body and kill him. So he can't leave <laughs> because oh, no. we want him to stay in the prince. And... The, the other problem is that the llama is having so much fun. <laughs> he kind of like <laughs> forgets his old life. Um, but uh, sometime, somehow his companions are able to get him to come back uh, before his body is discovered. And um, then he wins the argument because he knows all about the uh, being with females. Um, and they're like, damn, we shouldn't have given you this. That's six weeks. <laughs> That was <laughs> awfully kind. Right. Right. Absolutely. We didn't think you messed up. So, so there's a lot of cool stories. Um, I really would encourage people to read magic and mystery in Tibet. But interestingly enough, there is no Yeti. There's no Yeti yeah. mentioned. I'm like, what happened? 
And you, you know what's funny is is this whole discussion harkens back to Stephanie Quicks the last time she was here um, when we talked about uh, the sexy syntastic Sasquatch. One of the things we talked about was how the Yeti, there's several different kinds of Yeti in Tibet and Nepal, and you were talking about how uh, some of the common people, the householders, their Buddhism is strongly influenced, shaped, and syncretic with sh shamanic practices and sorcery. Well, uh, in Nepal, the Yeti can teach humans sorcery. And so they are the guru for um, human shamanic and sorcerous practices. And so you get kidnapped by the Yeti and they take nice. you to their cave and they teach you these things and um, their sexual initiation. Um, but you got to watch out for the Yeti's wife. There's, there's like three different kinds of Yeti. There's the one that I don't remember the actual name, but Kendra named it the Nope Yeti. And they live on the highest peaks of Nope Mountain. Um, it's and not really Nope And when you see nope them, you're like, nope, and you run the other direction. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. That is why. So they're, they're the ones at the highest peaks, and they're always cannibalistic, and they're not mm. nice. And nope. then there's the, the Yeti that live in the, in the middle part of the mountains where they're still, it's under the tree line. So you have trees and vegetation. And they're they're omnivorous, so they they but they probably won't eat you. So they're shorter; they're not as gigantic as the the nopietis, and they're the ones who teach. And then the ones that live at the lowest part of the mountains, where it's it's very lush forest, are uh, vegetarian, and they are smaller yet. And they're they're always nice, but they aren't the ones that have the wisdom. That's the middle mid level yetis. But the liminal yetis, the liminal yetis, <laughs> yes, the liminal yetis. Sometimes the male ones will marry one of the nope yetis from up above, so the female one is fierce and scary and bigger with teeth. So sometimes you have to run away from those, yeah, because uh, the missus might get you. Mrs. Yeah, exactly. Nope, exactly. Yes, Mrs. Nope has is having none of that. And uh, but the thing to do when you're chased by one is to run downhill because their breasts are so big. I'm not kidding. This is in an actual paper by an actual anthropologist. Their breasts are so big that they kind of bump up and 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 mess up their vision and and they pull them forward because they're so heavy and I they fall down pain. the hill. <laughs> I, I do too. So if they I, run down the hill, their breasts slap them in the face. And, and and it pulls them over, and it it you know it it unbalances them, and they fall down the hill. And See, now they're sympathetic. <laughs> I know, right? But I think John no wonder, Keel, dude, running people. up and down stairs is awful. Like I cannot imagine <laughs> running up and down like the mountains of Tibet trying to chase a dude with no right. bra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like. We need to make bras for the nope yeti. That's right. <laughs> no, we don't want to equalize the situation. <laughs> um, because they're not going to thank you. They're going to eat you. No, they probably won't. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I, I did read Jadu as well uh, by John Keel. And he talks about the yeti. And uh, he uh, actually um, talks about them running 
the the whole running downhill thing. I believe that's in there too. Um, mm-hmm. Jadu is great. I love uh, his uh, description of, of like meeting the Yazidi, uh, and yeah. uh, that that was really illuminating. I really like the Yazidi because they're not really devil worshippers. They they actually have some really beautiful beliefs. Um, so I don't know that he really got a, a full understanding of that, although he tried. But uh, so it was cool to hear him talk about them, though, and uh, and staying with them and the idea, you know, that he was staying all around the the East and the Middle East. And uh, uh, the, he was he was kind of at the end of his luck. And uh, somebody from the Yazidi tribe, um, an official invited him to stay with the Yazidi and uh, said um, that, hey, you know, now that you've stayed with us you can tell the world that we are a peaceful people which um you know people label them as devil worshipers because they don't really understand their beliefs and i think maybe that's a lot of what has been going on with their persecution um Mm -hmm. you know you know about the persecution of the kurds well a lot of kurds are yazidis so i think those two things go together but anyway it was it was cool um you know that he um, that he hung out with them, um, and he tried. He actually tried to um, go incognito <laughs> um, and see a sacred ceremony of the Yazidi. That didn't work out so well from for him, um, and and he he was found out, uh, and he didn't get to see uh, the sacred ceremony. But they didn't kill him, so. As devil worshippers, they're not that effective. <laughs> they're yeah. really evil. Um, yeah. They were a little bit too nice. Uh, so anyway, that was cool. And then he talks about he talks about a lot of great stuff. But I, of course, my favorite part, uh, even more than the Yazidi, was talking about the Yeti um, and the idea that it had run downhill. And you know, just that image of being at a lamasery like he was, and uh, when. He heard the scream and everybody heard the scream. Like everybody around in the village in the in the lamasery where he was heard this terrible scream and he's like, Was that a bird? <laughs> <laughs> like, and they're like, no. time to start time to start praying. Time to yeah. start praying. <laughs> oh, I, I should rephrase that. Was that a bird? Nope. anyway so um he talked about like how afraid everybody was nobody goes out after dark and we're locking the doors and it was just really cool and then he wanted to go find it the next day and uh they actually let him um and it seemed it seemed like he was he was being watched by them. Uh, he did feel that their presence was around them. Um, he might have seen one as well, um, but you know, thankfully, he didn't he didn't get too close. Otherwise, we might not have any other John Kill books, um, or we wouldn't even have that one because he, he died in his travels. But uh, yeah, he talked about the running downhill thing, um, and he also talked about the idea that their feet were backwards. Which, yeah. Um, is something that I've seen uh, even in like other like South American cryptids. Um, mm-hmm. But interestingly, Alexander, Na- Alexander David Neal talks about the dead, that the dead's feet are on backwards too. And that's um, how sometimes if people haven't had the, the proper rights 
Um, they won't know they're dead. They're all wandering around and stuff. And it takes them, for example, they'll be wandering on the beach and they see that their footprints are backwards. And then that, that could be a clue that you're dead. Some of the boots <laughs> of India also have their feet on backwards. Yeah. So I wonder, like, that was just one, like, thread that I noticed all these similarities. And I'm like, what's the deal with the the feet on backwards? It is weird feet are a thread in paranormal entities because the Uh, fae sometimes have bird feet. Or feet on backwards. Or feet on backwards or hooves. Like the Glastig, the Scottish water fairies, beautiful women wearing green dresses and they come upon men who were hunting in the woods and they're, you know, they're staying overnight in the woods and they, the men are playing music or singing and the women show up and they dance with them. And you only know you're in trouble if you catch sight of their feet and their goat hooves. And then you realize that you're about to get eaten and that's not good. Um, But yeah, it's feet or the ghosts don't gin have weird feet. Sometimes. Or they don't, or you don't see their feet. It's like they're a complete yep. person and they look real until you realize they don't, they fade out at the feet. The boots and, have backwards feet. Um, there are the fee in, oh God, my brain just quit working. The the fee in Southeast Asia. Um, oh yeah. Have yeah. either their feet don't touch the ground Yes. By just a, yes. by a small amount or they're on backwards. It's just... I, Ghosts about sometimes will fade out. Yeah. Um, and then there's... there's um, One of my favorites is with Bigfoot, you have Bigfoot that looks like a human foot. It's just big, you know, but it's, you know, it's huge. And then you get the three-toed ones or the four-toed ones. Or you get the ones that, you know, sometimes it looks like it's a deformed foot, but sometimes it's bird feet, but you saw a hairy thing. Yeah. And I wonder um, if sometimes there's like a a folkloric like trope, Um, you know, like the idea of the vanishing hitchhiker just seems to pop up everywhere. And even like the, the feet thing, you know, maybe... The, the story is like the story you were telling uh, about the dance, um, you know, that that these beings are always out there and you got to be clever. Otherwise, they'll fool you because there's just one detail that you're missing. So you got to right. yeah. look very carefully because um, I, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as I mentioned, and there's actually this story. Um, told among uh, the Polish, like of the fifties, nineteen fifties, probably around, or maybe even a little bit earlier, maybe even the forties, of this idea that um, you had to watch out for the the devil at dances. And there's there's a folklorist, a folklore story about somebody who went to a dance. And there's this handsome guy that she's dancing with. And then she happens to look down and his feet are hooves. Yeah. So, you know, maybe see some of this stuff might be just how we're programmed as human beings. Uh, But uh, yeah, the feet, that's a really interesting 
ask. We back could do then. an enti- we could do an entire episode about feet. <laughs> the like, fetishists what is it? would love it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what is it about the feet? Why? Why with the feet? <laughs> I maybe because it's from like a a sim- symbolistic in the back of your head sort of way. That's the mark we leave on the earth. Yeah. In a very primitive way. And that's what like connects just, us to the earth. And so like we just assign esoteric significance to feet subconsciously. Yeah, because that's it your be- foundation. Yeah. And so there, you know, these other beings, there's something wrong with the foundation. You're not right. completely you're not completely material if something's exactly. up with your feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your feet aren't on the earth, so... (laughs) Your feet ain't right. (laughs) Your feet are weird. (laughs) (laughs) feet are kind of weird. (laughs) I'm not sure where to go from here. (laughs) Took a very strange turn. I I think we're... (laughs) We did it again. We went way far afield. Yes. We're we're coming to the foot end of this... (laughs) (laughs) We're coming to the foot of this We're in the footnotes. That's right. We started started on the head and then worked our way down and we're on the feet. (laughs) Buddhist is very heady, so it kind of works. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming and visiting again. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're welcome back. Um, There's plenty of other four mothers to talk about. Or you can talk about feet. We can talk about feet if you want to. It's it's endless. There, there's so <laughs> so many awesome women in the paranormal, and they have incredible stories to tell. And nobody's heard them before because they're not being read. And I just uh, I think that needs to change. And I think it's gonna it's gonna be to everybody's benefit. If you like weird stories, uh, look up some of these women that we're talking about, and then you're gonna have a wealth. A, a treasure trove of weird stories you never heard of. So it would behoove you to uh, uh, look beyond oops. the males. <laughs> <laughs> Go beyond just talking about male experts. There's plenty of females out there, um, and uh, they've been really foundational in uh, the paranormal field. And the fact that you don't know them means that you have a faulty foundation so something must be wrong with your feet <laughs> Ta-da! Well, thank you <laughs> you don't think i can could, could connect all that stuff well i can <laughs> how you like me now we adore you <laughs> it's great Same here. Well, thank you for being with us thank you well that's all for this week's episode of the six degrees of john keel podcast If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. (laughs) 